Welcome to TAPS, the accounting podcast series. I'm Albie Brooks and working with me is Abby Trelaw. Our guest today is Patrick Ferguson. Patrick completed a Bachelor of Arts in English and History and then backed that up with a BCom both here at Melbourne. Then in 2016, Patrick headed to Harvard University to undertake his PhD in Business Administration. Close to finishing, Patrick joins us today to chat about the really interesting work he has been undertaking, particularly in the area of sport analytics and its application to business-related problems and issues. Welcome to TAPS, Patrick. G'day, Albie. Well, there's so much to talk to you about. Let's start with how you came to be interested in the field of sport analytics. Where did that originate from? Uh, I guess from a fairly young age. So like most middle-class Australian kids, uh, sort of uh, growing up in the 90s, there was a lot of sport on television and a lot of sport uh, in which Australia was fairly successful, particularly with regards to cricket and rugby, the two sports I probably followed most closely. Uh, and then from there, it was a case of um, getting given books every Christmas and birthday that had a lot of sports statistics in them. And that became a way for me to sort of make sense of um, the teams that were playing at the time, but also try to develop an understanding of the history of those different games and sort of contextualise how successful the Australian teams of my childhood were relative to the historical teams. Um, I have memories of sort of flipping through old copies of Wisden and thinking about how someone like Steve or Alan Border may have compared to a player like Don Bradman or Greg Chappell. And even at that young age, when I didn't have a lot of sort of formal mathematics behind me, I was already going through that kind of process of thinking, well, how would you make those comparisons? They faced different rules, different playing conditions, the strength of the opposition varied in quality. How do you adjust for those sort of differences over time to make a apple for apple comparison rather than apple for orange comparison? Uh, so that was something that already sort of piqued my interest in sport from a young age. And then when I moved into my uh, tertiary studies, so taking stats and econometrics courses as an undergrad at Melbourne Uni, I wanted a way to uh, make that material more accessible and sport became an avenue through which to do that. So rather than kind of learning some of the dry material, I devised ways in which to sort of uh, force comparisons uh, to, with sport or towards sport. And, and a big tool that helped me to make that transition was I was given a copy of the book Moneyball. And that was a big moment where I kind of realized, hang on, this is clearly about baseball and about sport and the business of sport. But a lot of the underlying um, sort of philosophical conceptual things at play in the book were about how do you use numbers and data and statistical techniques to test theories about the world and understand how humans behave. And that was a really sort of a, a really interesting intellectual moment for me was this idea that hang on sports and oh, sorry, stats and econometrics can help us understand things about sport. But it also tells us something about how humans make decisions as individuals or within organizations. So it could be anything from, why are certain types of individuals undervalued by the market? Why doesn't the market fully appreciate maybe the performance that they provide? Um, why are certain attributes or traits overvalued? Um, how can we identify those instances? How can you um, potentially exploit them? Um, and how can you potentially correct them if they're things that are causing sort of losses in efficiency and equ equitability across the market? Um, so that was kind of a, an, another big moment in my sort of um, growing interest in sports analytics 
And then finally, towards the end of my undergraduate uh, studies at Melbourne, I went through that fairly uh, sort of a standard process where you apply to a bunch of internships and grad year programs at consulting and banking firms. Uh, and sort of it dawned on me that that wasn't really the space that I was most interested in. And I'd been fortunate enough to uh, come across someone that had just founded a small sports analytics startup in Melbourne. And I basically said, look, I don't have anything else to do with the summer and potentially the following year. Will you bring me on board and let me play around with the data and try to help um, deliver some value to the startup? So I then proceeded to spend the sort of next two years making yeah very little money, but getting to spend a lot of a lot of my time looking at uh, player performance statistics and contracting data in professional rugby and AFL. And that was a, a really great experience because it allowed me to get my hands dirty with some of the data out in the field. Uh, it allowed me to get to know people at these different sports organizations. And also it allowed me to sort of gain a, 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 what I think was, a, was an important um, piece of information. And that was that professional sports has become very rich with data, but fairly insight poor. And the sense I got was that there are lots of, great measures out there in pro sport, but also in lots of industries. Uh, and only sort of a very small part of it is actually capturing those measures and storing them somewhere. The real value comes from how you actually make decisions uh, based off those measures. And I saw pretty quickly that that was true of a lot of sports organizations that they'd gone crazy over measuring lots and lots of things without thinking about um, kind of what decision were they ultimately trying to make with that data and were they necessarily um, exploiting that data to its full potential. Um, so that got me thinking, look, great, spent some time now in industry looking at these sports questions. How can I then maybe uh, think more deeply and develop a even sort of more developed set of skills to, uh, to address those questions? And that was when I thought about and ultimately did apply to a, a PhD program in the US. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. You, you're quite right about the, the availability of in sport, in analytics and performance metrics which is mirrored, of course, inside organizations as well, where we have so much in the way of analytics and metrics that, it, in effect, um, we can be swamped with the data rather than, you know, using it to lead to better decision-making, which is clearly what you've tried to do with the sports. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, the key um, sort of key connection to make is that really none of these, um, none of the phenomenon that at least I think about in my research in sport is, is a... Um, is uh, unique to, to that setting. I use sport as a sort of a lab to answer questions about broader organizations and firms and, yeah. and the challenges they face. Um, and I think that that's kind of key there is that these are yeah, pretty fundamental um, features of how people make decisions and how organizations function. Um, yeah. yeah. And you can port that across to healthcare or finance or whatever that may be retail. Like yeah. there's a bunch of operational accounting strategy questions that are really, when you abstract away, um, largely the same across all these different settings. Yep, yep. Now, you, you, as you alluded to, you're able to sort of build on some of this early work and make it the focus of your PhD studies. Could you tell us just a little bit about the program you've undertaken and how you set about acquiring the skill set? Clearly, you had a really good skill set to start with, but how you've built on that skill set to undertake the kind of work that you've been doing? Yeah, so I... I was fortunate enough to uh, to be encouraged to apply to uh, PhD programs at business schools in the US and then fortunate enough to get into the program at Harvard Business School. So I'm currently in my fourth year of the PhD there. And my primary concentration is in accounting and management. And I have a 
fairly strong focus as well on what I would call kind of more general managerial economics. Now, the great thing about sort of the, the program that I'm in and, and, I'm, and I'm beginning to wrap up now is that um, there's a strong focus on training individuals to produce world-class research and then go off and kind of continue to do that research in academic roles around the world. Now, um, like we touched on earlier, my research heavily relies on data from professional sport, but that's always, it's always had an intention behind it to generalize to more economic questions. Um, so one of the strengths about that sort of program at, at Harvard was that there's a really great sort of two year, two and a half year component of the PhD, which is just coursework. And I wouldn't go so far as to sort of call it hazing, but they definitely, uh, they definitely stretch you in terms of uh, your intellectual and academic capabilities. So there's a big onus on, look, here's a fire hose, basically try to drink as much as you can from it uh, in this short time frame to, to develop your kind of technical skills, whether that be microeconomic theory, um, your econometric and statistical modeling skills, and then also you're exposed to uh, reading a lot of academic research in finance and accounting and management more generally. So that provided a really intense sort of burst of exposure to uh, really great courses, building up technical skills, and then reading a lot of research broadly in a range of areas, uh, which was really great for kind of um, knowing where to look to, to, to access this sort, of, this sort of stuff and then having guidance from um, faculty there that were teaching. And then concurrently to the coursework, there's also a strong focus on producing your own research straight away. Uh, and this idea that you should tackle important challenging questions that are potentially risky and, and uncertain, but that's what you're there to do. That's the whole idea of being an academic at one of these well-funded institutions is you should go after questions that maybe in industry don't always get answered because there's incentives, whether that be kind of more short-term focus, you can't dive into these problems. And that was always this sort of philosophy that was sitting over uh, the work and research we were encouraged to do at, at Harvard. And then finally, these PhD programs have kind of what I would call a hidden curriculum. And that's the fact that there's not formal coursework, but there is a, a bunch of stuff, a bunch of skills that you need to acquire to do rigorous empirical research. And that really is only um, developed by throwing yourself into real world research projects and having to work with the data. So that just involved pairing up with other PhD students and faculty and identifying interesting research questions and then going out there and working out, well, how do I get data to try to answer that question? I have to learn how to basically write programs to scrape that data. I need to be able to write code to analyze that data. I need to come up with ways to share those results and collaborate with faculty. And that was a very rewarding sort of portion of the project, of, sorry, of the PhD. And that's something that you sort of continue to acquire as you tackle these, these sorts of research questions uh, is keeping these sort of uh, best practices in place by sort of collaborating on these projects. And that's been sort of a, a hugely rewarding component of, of the studies as well. Yeah, certainly has seems to have put you in a position of being preparing you perfectly for some of the work that you have undertaken. What you've mentioned uh, having sort of nice, interesting research questions and, and exploring them out in the field. So I'd like to turn our focus just to one of your current papers and it's titled Consuming Contests, Outcome Uncertainty, Information Disclosure and Spectator Demand. Really interesting uh, field of inquiry. Could you just uh, elaborate on how that work came about? Yeah, so this, this is a question I've sort of um, been working on for probably the last 12 months, maybe even 18 months uh, in various iterations. And this largely came about by just following any 
major sports legal sporting contests around the world. So moving between Australia and the US, you start to see these sort of commonalities in terms of how these leagues contests are run. One of the big things uh, that jumps out is this focus uh, on competitive balance as an attribute or quality of sporting contests that captures a lot of uh, popular interest. So you often see in the US and you'll see in Australia, quite less in Europe, a lot of administrators talk about, well, we need to have a fair competition. We need to have a competition where strong teams uh, can win, but also weak teams have the opportunity to, over time, improve themselves and become competitive. Uh, and these, these, this sort of objective of competitive balance uh, has been pursued by the leagues uh, through the implementation of a range of policies. So it could be things like salary caps, drafts, revenue sharing. And these policies have been shown to indeed make contests more well-balanced and competitive, but they've also uh, faced some resistance from player associations, from owners on the grounds that they violate a range of kind of rules and laws. They're seen as uh, antitrust violations. They're seen as um, infringements upon the, the fair and free competition of the market. They're not always as embraced and as welcomed um, by all the stakeholders in a league as they are by the administrators. So my first question here was, well, yeah, we've seen some opposition. The leagues nearly always push back by saying, well, yeah, maybe players do suffer a little under these regulations. Maybe the owners don't extract the full rents they could, but this is all done in the benefit or in the interests of the consumer, of the spectator. We should have an even contest because that's exactly what a spectator wants. When they show up, decide to show up at a game, it's driven by the fact that they want some uncertainty around the outcome of that upcoming game. Now, to me, this seemed anecdotally obvious, intuitively fairly obvious. Like if I'd spoken to someone at the footy, this would largely be what they would say. Um, but if you go and look at empirical research on this topic, the results are all over the place. And you don't actually see this obvious anecdotal answer borne out in the research. What you see is across different leagues, over time, across different countries, uh, the results are, are mixed. Some leagues, competitive balance and uncertainty of outcome drive attendance. Other leagues, there's no relationship with attendance. Uh, even in some instances, it seems like it's negatively related to attendance, as if spectators want games that are very certain, whether that be very certain that their own team wins or even one study showed very certain that their own team loses, which <laughs> made very little sense to me. Uh, mm, so I guess my angle, yeah, I guess so, so the way I came in towards this project was this question of your average punter on the street has this idea that, yeah, spectators care about uncertain contests. That makes sense. The literature has said, no, like this is all over the place. This is not held up. Um, so where sort of myself and my co-author approached this, this question was understanding what, well, maybe why is the evidence not? as clear cut as we would expect. Uh, so we dug around and looked at the prior studies and the hunch that sort of we had was that they're informative and useful because they uh, sort of data points um, along the way, but they're all subject to a pretty major empirical limitation. And that's, that's that they're not relying on what I would argue to be a robust, well-identified empirical strategy to, uh, to, uh, to establish a causal effect. So what I mean by this is they don't just isolate the relationship between the uncertainty of an upcoming game and demand for that game they partly capture that, but they also capture lots of other things that move with game outcome uncertainty and attendance. So this could be things like uh, promotions and advertising differences across games. This could be pricing differences across games. This could be the timing of the game during the season. This could be weather. All these sorts of things that both simultaneously affect the outcome uncertainty of a game, but also attendance. Now, some of these prior studies have tried to address uh, these confounding factors, but some of them are just unobservable. You can't actually 
put a control in for all these things. There's lots moving around. And as researchers, we can never or never fully know the full set of things that determine attendance. So where my co-author and I have decided to direct the project was towards thinking, well, where can we find natural experiments in sports leagues or sports events that cause random variation in the uncertainty of an upcoming game? In effect, we want shocks that are uncorrelated with anything else other than outcome uncertainty. And we want to use those shocks to then identify the causal effect of this thing on attendance, which in theory sounds like really neat and appealing, but it's very messy because there's a, there's, there's a range of ways in which those sorts of natural experiments um, basically can be, a, can be violated as, as identifying um, instruments. But having spent some time sort of thinking carefully about the institutional details of different sports leagues, uh, it occurred to me that the AFL provided a really nice setting to think about this. So basically in the AFL prior to games being played, teams must disclose uh, the lineup of their team several days prior to a game. So what I thought about this was that it's a nice opportunity to exploit potential changes in teams lineup that are a shock to the general market, a shock to the general public. And these most likely arise due to injuries that are random or exogenous or occur with very little control or ability to be influenced by the teams themselves. So basically what my co-author and I did was look at a huge number of AFL games that have been played over the last 10 years or so. Uh, and for each game, scrape the, all the lineup changes that were made in advance of that game. Um, then scrape all the betting data about those games to trace the effect on the financial markets of these disclosures of injuries. And then go and look at uh, how attendance changed when these random injury shocks made upcoming games closer or less close. Uh, so using this design, we were largely able to then hold constant all the other things that also move with game outcome uncertainty and also move with attendance. Things that the prior studies in, in uh, the literature had not been able to hold constant. So that was sort of what we decided to set out to investigate and, and how we provided a sort of novel way of thinking about that problem. But there's a reason why people really hadn't necessarily done this before. Uh, at least several reasons. One is that there's been a more recent turn towards, I suppose, in economics and management and finance and accounting more generally. There's been a more recent turn towards thinking about these sorts of causal inference problems more robustly. But also, there's just a data collection challenge of doing this sort of work. It requires you to collect a lot of stuff, uh, which is not uh, trivial to do. So like I said earlier, we need to scrape data from the sports betting market. We need to get lineup change data. We need to get attendance data. We need to get player statistics from the field. So all that sort of stuff is a pretty um, onerous thing to gather and it creates a fairly high barrier to entry in this space. So we decided fairly early on, if we want to um, do a really good job of answering this question, we have to incur some costs and those costs were going out to collect this data that's not straightforward to get. And that was kind of the strategic decision we made with this research was to go after this question and to invest in the data collection upfront. Yeah, so um, a huge data collection project, particularly as you just indicated, you went back was it 10 years you said you went back 10 years through 10 years of data yeah yeah we did yeah around 10 years um the final paper i think used a slightly smaller sample but yeah we effectively had so each if we think about each observation in our study is a game so for each game that's played in each round for what 10 seasons we were getting um all the lineup announcements we were getting the performance statistics of the players on the field we were getting things like the weather uh the attendance figures we were getting a range of things uh, that we were scraping from numerous sources to ultimately throw into a big pooled data set that would allow us to really tightly kind of pin down the, the causal relationships we were interested in. 
Okay, so let's go to those. So what is it? What did you find having collected uh, all this data? So basically, we kind of took a two-step approach. The first thing we did was before we used our kind of new novel um, empirical strategy to look at the causal relationship between game outcome uncertainty and attendance, we said, why don't we just firstly do what the literature has historically done in this space and use their techniques to estimate the relationship between these variables. So we went out there and we looked at the traditional model. We ran that. And that said a one standard deviation increase in the uncertainty of the outcome of an upcoming game in the AFL led to a sort of four to 5% increase in attendance of that game. So that's an extra 2000 people to a game on a whatever Saturday at the MCG. That's what the, the literature's traditional technique had said. So a fairly small increase. Now we went and used our more uh, explicitly identified strategy to estimate this same construct. And what we found was that a one standard deviation increase in game outcome uncertainty was associated with a 12 to 15% increase in attendance at a game. So that's closer to a sort of 4,000, 5,000 person increase in attendance. So almost a threefold uh, larger effect size than had been previously documented. So the takeaway from this really is, yes, people have a very strong appetite for uncertain contests. Your marginal spectator does want to show up to see a game where the outcome is highly uncertain. Uh, and the prior literature had really heavily underestimated the strength of those preferences, which to your regular person on the streets, not terribly surprising. But the, the neat part here was that we were able to say why prior work had underestimated it and then go and arrive at this more robust estimate. Now to the league, this is also a powerful finding to have because it provides quite a lot of support for their aggressive pursuit of competitive balance um, over the last few seasons. So the, the AFL obviously faces some flack when they want to implement revenue sharing or they want to change how the draft works to create a more level playing field. What our data helps them say and argue is that, yeah, the consumer on average will benefit from the implementation of these policies as it's creating a product that's more desirable for them. And that was the primary takeaway from the paper. So I think, yeah, it had a, had a has important implications for the league, uh, it also allows us to address a, a fairly well-established academic literature. And it also allows us to, I suppose, take advantage of a way of thinking about this problem that um, is kind of unique to people that spend a bit of time thinking about finance and accounting questions. So we thought the way we kind of came at our strategy to identify these causal effects was through a disclosure event, which was the announcement of team lineups and then using a capital markets measure, betting odds, to then trace out game outcome uncertainty. So the neat thing here is we're kind of able to draw on a, a set of skills that you get thinking about accounting and finance problems to answer a consumer behavior question in sport. Uh, and I think that's a kind of neat synthesis of um, sort of interdisciplinary techniques and topics that is partly the reason why I find this sort of academic research so rewarding and interesting. Well, I don't blame you. It's fascinating. I think that combination of as you say, the sport analytics, business accounting, consumer behavior type um, disciplines that are all involved in this um, has really resulted in some ground, groundbreaking work here. And I think uh, you should be applauded for that along with uh, your, your co-authors and supervisors on um, encouraging you to undertake our work that really is a bit on the edge for, you know, uh, for, for, for many people and to be able to combine as you say, a sort of highly robust statistical 
methodologies to really interesting questions and 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 at the same time be able to connect nicely to sort of business and accounting related issues is well really neat I mean, you should be commended for that oh, so thank you, wish you well with the paper uh, in due course now i know you're involved in a range of other uh, pieces of work as well around the sport and the analytics but i just wanted to talk to you a little bit just broadly about sport analytics as, as we look forward, so we know that organisations and sporting organisations down to individual sporting clubs and even down to individual sports people, whether they're at professional or amateur level, um, continue to seek sort of analytics. So there's that aspect and then there's obviously sort of the research aspect that you're heavily involved in. So going forward, how do you think the nature of the analytics themselves are going to evolve? Yeah, so I think this is this is super interesting. We're at a real inflection point in sports analytics, but also this analytics data science stuff more generally across industries. Uh, I think as we touched on earlier, there's been an explosion in measurement. So it's become cheaper, easier to measure lots of things and store that data and even kind of draw on that data. But we're a long way away from capturing the, the real value of that data. And I think this is something in sports that is going to have to begin to change. Um, and I think one of the, the real opportunities for organizations to, uh, to develop a competitive advantage here is around thinking very carefully about the difference between what, I, what we call kind of causal inference problems. So saying if and how X affects Y. So identifying those sorts of problems and distinguishing them from, from uh, prediction problems, which is really just saying if X, we see this. Uh, and they're very different things because it's basically exactly what I had to address in, in the paper I just described. You can form pretty good predictions about the world um, that seem to hold up, at least looking retrospectively, that tell you nothing about the mechanisms and tell you little about the validity or value of um, a policy you may pursue. So I think where we're likely to see some developments is um, organizations really carefully thinking about using stats and numbers and data to make causal statements. And what I mean by this is in sport, it could be anything from you'll see pitch, you'll see sort of, let's say in cricket, you'll see something like ball by ball data on a batsman facing a particular bowler. And they'll tell you the ball moves, whatever. When the, when the ball pitched at this length um, with this amount of swing, the batsman was this likely to get the ball to that spot on the field. Then you'll go and see a statement as if to say, well, if you then put the ball there again, this is the likely outcome. All of that sort of drawing of inferences neglects the fact that those deliveries were not, historically, were not randomly varying where they were pitched. So you can't make a statement, a causal statement about that. So what we're going to have to see is a move towards thinking more carefully about the identifying assumptions, the assumptions you have to make for historical data analysis to tell you a causal thing. Uh, I think that's a, it's a key distinction. It's something in academia we've seen a sort of revolution towards, but I think industry is going to have to, um, to make that pivot to get the full value out of the data that they have at their hands. And I think that's kind of a, a key thing. So you'll see it in, if you think about regular business problems, anything from pricing to um, corporate governance questions around what makes for a good board member they're all in a way causal inference questions. So if you vary this attribute, you get this outcome. And you have to be very careful about making those sorts of statements with historical data because lots of other things move. And I think what we're going to see is a, is a move towards thinking about problems in, in this way. 
And what that requires is a change in mindset when working with data from thinking of this as an engineering problem. Here I can use all these hard technical skills to whatever, fit a really convoluted model. So moving from an engineering viewpoint to a scientist in a lab viewpoint. And that viewpoint is here I am looking at the world. I have data that tells me stuff about the world. I need to formulate and then refute hypotheses about how things in the world work. Uh, and that's a, what I think about is a very experiment, experimental mindset. So if I hold constant stuff and I move this one thing, what happens to the outcome? And I think what we're going to have to see is a move towards thinking very carefully about how to take advantage of this sort of experimental mindset more than in a sort of engineering mindset, which we've seen in the past. And I think that's something that also really favors what I would consider to be um, people that maybe their training wasn't necessarily in the more technical areas. They're in organizations, but they have very strong institutional knowledge and very strong knowledge of their setting. And also just a very good sense about how people make decisions in the world that they inhabit. And I think that's a, what you'll see is a swing back towards a value, value on those attributes and skills as being able to work with the data becomes easier and as many things can be automated. It's putting the onus back on people that actually carefully think about um, the substance of the problems and not so much about how can you pull in the most data points possible and fit a model as efficiently as possible. Excellent. Look, it really does seem to be an area going forward that uh, provides a lot of opportunity for um, analysis and availability of info, whether it's in sport, business, other settings. And so, as you say, um, there's the collection of the data itself and then it's how we might set about trying to use it. And, and what we, as you uh, refer to, what we infer from the information that's available to us. Um, I think I'm going to look at my sporting contest in the future in a little bit of a different kind of way, Patrick. You've, uh, and I might have to go out and have another read of Moneyball as well. Um, <laughs> Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you joining us here at TAPS, and I appreciate that uh, you're still in the process of completing your PhD, so I understand that you know the, the work is in progress, but just fascinating to talk to you about some of the things that you've been able to, to investigate and uh, some of the conclusions emerging from, from that work. We wish you well for the completion of your PhD and uh, the, the continued work that you do in the sport analytics business uh, area and um, hopefully some really nice publications down the track. So good luck and thanks for joining us here at TAPS. Brilliant. Thanks for having me, Albie.